This is Ian Levitt with Studio Americana. You know, it's been really rewarding working with Apparatus on this project for the Here to There podcast. I'll admit I hadn't thought much about transportation, but because of the hard work Apparatus put into this project, I see these issues in a whole new light. And that's really the power of this medium. It's the true broadcasting. You can reach the entire globe in one second. That's also why I started Studio Americana, to help you create top quality podcasts that focus on what you care about most. Check us out at studioamericana.com, and don't hesitate to contact me if you have any questions or ideas. Enough about us, though. Let's go to episode three of Here to There. Welcome to Here to There, a podcast about commuting in and around the Twin Cities and where it could go next. From Apparatus and Transit for Livable Communities and co-hosted by Laili Fatihi and Laura-Mann Ginsberg, Here to There brings you along for a variety of commutes across the many systems, neighborhoods, and modes available to Twin Cities commuters. In today's episode, we focus on the ways we connect and the ways our connections can be broken by the highways and roads around us. We'll start today's episode in a scene familiar to many of us, a single occupancy vehicle, as we commute across the metro. Then, we'll head to the studio where we're joined by representatives from Reconnect Rondo, an organization working to rebuild the community connections that were lost in the Interstate 94 expansion. To follow along with additional resources and information, visit heretotheirpodcast.org and follow the H2T podcast hashtag on Twitter. And now, let's join the ride. So let's start by talking a little bit about the fact that we are on a very early morning commute. Can you tell us where we are for here and where we're going to for there? This is Laylee, and we're back with another commute. In case you couldn't tell, that was Laura, my partner at Apparatus. She's riding along today on a daily commute that will take her, well, I'll let Bill tell you. We're leaving Chanhassen, Minnesota, out by Lake Susan. We're heading to the Midway, approximately I-94 and 280. That's Bill. He's our commuter. You'll notice, Laura, it's just a few minutes after 6 o'clock in the morning. This is the time I usually leave. It's cute that he pretends he doesn't know Laura, but in actuality, he's her dad. It's good to have connections when you're making a podcast. It gets ahead of traffic. If you get on 212 anytime after about 10 after 6... The traffic is pretty much all lanes are full. If you can get on before 6, it's about half as full. So there's kind of a witching hour there that you get ahead of the traffic or you get in the middle of it. How long have you been doing this commute? Well, a little more than 10 years. Do you like this commute? I mean, it's, it's long. 40 minutes is not anything to sneeze at. Do you dread it? Do you look forward to it? Is it day by day? It's a commute I'm used to. I've always liked driving. I like driving more when there's not wall-to-wall traffic. So, I mean, I don't dread it. I don't know that I would say I'd look forward to it. It's, But it's, you know, it's not, it's not a bad thing. For many commuters that drive every day, it may feel like there's no opportunity to take public transit to get from here to there, even if they'd like to. I worked for years downtown Minneapolis uh, for a Pillsbury company, and there was a bus line I could take from oh, about two miles from my house in Chanhassen, and the bus would drop me off literally right at the front door of Pillsbury, downtown Minneapolis. Where I work now, it's in a business park. To get a bus there, it's not really practical. I would, I would need to park at a park and ride, take a bus downtown, uh, change buses, or else walk about four or five blocks to the train, uh, light rail that goes to St. Paul, get off at Westgate, stop, 
and from there about a three block walk to work so all in all I think it would take approximately an hour to an hour and a half if it suddenly became practical the light rail expanded all the way out here would you take it I'd have to look at the whole route I mean as I said I took the the bus in for 10 years downtown Minneapolis to Pillsbury and I liked that commute all in all I mean especially in bad weather if it's snowing or something you, you know you get on the bus and it's not your problem to figure out the snow and other drivers and ice and all that so if it was a logical commute I would do it in a heartbeat because I think that's more practical. There are feelings from some outlying cities or so we're told by some of the legislators that represent them. You know, why should I have to pay for public transportation in my state taxes? Why should I have to contribute to something that I don't think I benefit from? Knowing that, you know, you can't practically take public transportation in a way that comfortably fits in your life and is convenient, how do you feel about, you know, knowing that you pay for a system that is really not convenient enough to be for you at this point? I think public transportation is a quality of life and a quality of city life. I think it speaks to the vibrancy of your city. We've, we see a number of cities that are really in a unenviable position as far as uh, too much traffic, not enough infrastructure. You know, Atlanta comes to mind. The car traffic is just out of control. Public transportation, I think, serves something more than just the individuals using it, it serves to make the city more of a, a first-class major city. I mean, I can't even imagine some of our larger cities like New York or Washington or many others, Chicago, without public transportation. I just, I can't even picture how they'd function. We've exited now. Where are we going now? Well, we just came off um, 212, and this is the where it intersects with 494. We're, we're now heading east. We'll be going through Eden Prairie and then through Bloomington, basically past the uh, airport, and then we will make our way north to the Midway. Is there anything you look forward to seeing in your commute every day? I purposely have mapped out a path that is not just all freeways. The quickest way to get downtown for me would be 494 to cross town 62 to 35W North to 94 East. And I purposely choose staying to the south on this route. And I get off by the airport, um, St. Paul Avenue, Edgecombe area. And then I go north on Cleveland through neighborhoods that I find very, I don't know what word I'm looking for, but just sort of relaxing. I go by St. Catherine. I go by St. Thomas Colleges, universities. I'm a graduate of St. Thomas, so it's a familiar neighborhood. And it's, it's interesting for me to watch the seasons. Zen and the Art of Commuting by Bill. So the students come in the fall and they depart in the spring. And, you know, it's heavier foot traffic and car traffic around the colleges in the winter. And in the summer, the traffic changes dramatically because school is out. So just the seasons and driving through, like, St. Paul Park area, older neighborhood, established, beautiful trees. You can just see the seasons uh, turning over, and I think that's, to me, very, very interesting. Just as Bill has adapted his route to be more relaxing and pleasant, he's also adjusted his workday to avoid traffic congestion as much as possible. I actually leave early, earlier in the afternoon, more like 3 o'clock, 
to get ahead of the traffic patterns because traffic would back up for half mile, a mile. It's a long commute, and in addition to the inconvenience you're going through, people tend to get more frustrated and drive a little crazier and a little more road rage and all that stuff that you know you really don't want to have to deal with. I think people that drive in heavy traffic would be lying to if they didn't say there are times when traffic just plain gets to them or a driver or drivers just get to them for behaving badly for driving you know close to your bumper for switching in and out and you know driving in a dangerous fashion it it, it gets under everybody's skin i think to survive out here for your own you know mental balance you need to just relax is there anything that would push you out of driving gas prices or changes in highway systems that just made it too congested 24 hours a day. Is there anything that you can think of that would kind of push you over the edge there? I mean, at the end of the day, you got to get to work. So, I mean, it's just, you know, use some things like, you know, gas prices, double, triple, whatever. You have to get creative. I mean, those are things I would think about talking to my employer about. Are there other options for working at home? Are there other options for, you know, getting the work done on a different time schedule. All right, so we're switching over now. We are on 494, where 494 and Highway 5 run together for a little bit here by the airport, and we're following the signs for Terminal 1, as though we were headed toward that drop-off parking area for the airport, and then we'll be we'll be doing what? We'll be continuing on Highway 5? Yeah, we'll take Highway 5, which turns into 7th Street going into St. Paul, and then we'll, we'll jump off on edge come and head north uh, north to the midway. So you've been doing this drive for a while. Do you feel like you've seen any changes in traffic? I mean, aside from construction having its effects here and there, do you feel like you've seen over time that there's more drivers, less drivers, more carpools, more distraction? Ironic you uh, asked that. I, I did notice, to me, a perceptible drop in traffic in the 2008-2009 period when we went through the Great Recession, and it just felt like there were less people on the road because maybe less people were working, and it, it just was kind of almost eerie. It felt like there was a 10 to 20 percent drop in traffic on the daily commute. In the last two, three years, it feels like traffic has been at a consistent to slightly growing uh, level. Turns out Bill's right. Traffic congestion dropped by 20% in the Twin Cities in 2008 and about 30% nationally due to rising unemployment rates and higher oil prices. Traffic fatalities in Minnesota also hit an all-time low in 2008. And speaking of traffic safety, Bill's about to give any driving school instructor a run for his money on how to watch for behavior that can be dangerous. We just crossed underneath Post Road and that's an area where I keep looking to the right. Um, There's a gas station Super America, where a lot of the taxi drivers congregate, and they come across the bridge, and when they come across, they'll come streaming down the entrance route from Post Road, and 90% of them have to cross three lanes to get into the airport, So, and I'm just going through, so that could be quite, can be quite congested, so you just have to, again, be awake and aware and give people room. And we finally made it to St. Paul with its tricky on-ramps. We're coming into St. Paul on Highway 5. You'll notice there's a couple on-ramps from the right that are a little dicey because there's virtually no entrance area for them. They just merge just 
I mean, for those people, they just slam you right into the roadway with the other cars, so it can be uh, congested. Some people enter, you know, way too slow. They almost stop, which can cause problems. Others come flying in so fast that they almost run people off the road. Isn't this gorgeous, watching the sun come up? It's just, this is a highlight of the day. I mean, for people who aren't out at this time, they miss this, and it, I think it's, you know, one of the good things in life to watch the sun come up, and you get to do another day. Ah, Bill. So we're making a little bit of a detour. Where are we stopping? Uh, we're in Highland. I'm going to stop at the auto bank, make a deposit. Sometimes, you know, take money out. Sometimes put money in. Hopefully you put more money in than you take money out. You know you can do this with your phone now, right? Yeah. <laughs> this is... Um, but not while driving. This is just kind of on the routes. So when you don't have someone riding along with you, do you listen to anything? I usually don't in the morning. I might occasionally listen to a podcast. I might turn the radio on a little bit for news, but I mean, to me it's kind of thinking time. This is when I put together my day of what I'm going to do and kind of think, think through some business issues. So it's my, it's my day planning period. Approaching the Midway area now, Bill talks about the expansive changes that have taken place along the University Avenue corridor. It was interesting watching them build the light rail lines, I'm going to say, what, four or five summers ago. And they basically tore up University completely. I mean, just removed everything, the roads, the sidewalks, all the way down to the dirt, <clears throat> and rebuilt it up from scratch. It was really quite amazing, and you can... See now, looking overhead on University, the wires, and I mean, that just didn't exist seven, eight years ago. So it's, it's another one of the evolutions that you see, and, and some businesses come and go and things like that. This area, I think, has developed quite a bit, even before the train came. I remember I used to work around here. By around here, she means at Bill's office. The jig is up, you guys. You know, just seeing some of the changes that have gone in, both residential, commercial... It's, uh, it's impressive. It's really evolving, and you'll see a lot, a lot of uh, housing uh, going up, either new or uh, refurbishing existing buildings. This, uh, this uh, light rail corridor, is, it's, um, it's generating a lot of interest. The light rail expansion did more than just bring transit options to this area. I think the whole project with the, the light rail, and you can see on the right here a lot of these Older buildings now have been spruced up and cleaned up and fixed up, and they're now very, they're very much sought after housing. The businesses that were impacted during the constructions, the ones that hung in there through it, now I think are reaping the benefits of, you know, upgraded University Avenue and the street we're driving on. University back ten years ago was really pretty embarrassing. I mean, it, it was just worn out. And, patched and repatched and repatched and so they, they virtually like I said tore everything up and rebuilt it so the the asphalt surface you drive on is just a hundred percent better 
Wrapping up our drive, we review where we've been, and the tally is impressive. So how many cities have we gone through? It was Chanhassen, Eden Prairie, Bloomington, St. Paul. Paul. Yeah, St. Paul, and now we're <clears throat> still in St. Paul. But really just almost exactly on the border with Minneapolis. Yeah, we're right, right on the border. Again, if we walk one block west, we'll be in Minneapolis. So it is 642 we got on the road just at 6 o'clock, a little after. So, as predicted, about 40 minutes. 40 minutes. Here we are at the uh, UEL, University Enterprise Laboratory building, which is where we do our work. And it's a pleasure having you with me this morning, Laura. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure being here. should do it again sometime. Yeah, let's do that. We're back in the studio, and Laura now joins me from her commute with her dad, Bill. It sounds like you guys had a nice morning. Yeah, we did. I actually did that commute with my dad uh, all through one summer when I was working at a school in Frogtown. So it was actually a lot of fun to revisit the long drive from Chanhassen and to hear all of his thoughts about it. For many of us, getting in a car by ourselves is a go-to driving option. So it was interesting to hear his thoughts on how to make it pleasant and what would have to change in order for him to make a different choice. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. And, you know, passing through all the neighborhoods and cities along the way, it really struck me that we're both connected and divided by the highways and roads around us, which is a great segue into our next speakers, Nick and Lars from Reconnect Rondo. The studio interview I did with Nick and Lars was really fascinating. The Rondo community was effectively split in two by the I-94 expansion years ago, and they're working to reconnect the affected area. They tell the story much better than I do, so let's go to that discussion and hear more. I am joined in the studio by Lars Christensen and Nick Kalik from Reconnect Rondo. Thank you for joining me today, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Nick, you are one of the most well-known and respected community leaders in St. Paul. For our listeners who may not be familiar with Rondo, would you please share some background as to the significance of this neighborhood and what it has endured? Rondo was a predominantly African-American community from Lexington all the way down to uh, Rice Street. And within that community, there was about 600 families, over 100 uh, businesses, and there was numerous social clubs. It was our world. We did everything there. And um, because of government action, that was disrupted. They came through with the freeway, even though there was an alternative route north of Rondo, they decided to go through Rondo for for various reasons. And as a result of that, we lost our social, political, economic uh, power. Many folks, uh, like my grandpa that owned his home, was he was 80 years old when he was displaced, wasn't able to purchase another home. Many of the businesses that were lost were never able to relocate anywhere else in the city. And a lot of that had to do with de facto you know, segregation, even though they didn't have signs up, you just knew you didn't move to a certain community. And so one of the largest transfers of wealth, which is land, was lost, you know, in the process. And so uh, this has been a, uh, a somewhat of a festering wound for many of us that have lived through that experience and not to see any kind of uh, justice far as uh, some people have talked about reparations, but now the uh, the land bridge has, has been brought into the discussion. And we think that 
you know, would go a long way not to completely eliminate, you know, the harm and the hurt that was done. But I think it would it would help in some small ways. So when was it that this highway expansion plowed through Rondo? Uh, they displaced my grandpa, who lived in uh, the lower part of Rondo in 1956. And so they started somewhere around 1956, and then they would do it in segments. And you mentioned that there was an alternative route that they could have used that would have avoided Rondo. Why didn't they pick it? It was a process that did not include us. And, and I don't know if we've been able to prove this, but they saw a way of sort of eliminating a, a, a blight, you know, Part of our community uh, was in need of, of some tender, loving care. And so, uh, you know, they decided that they were going to just come through there and sort of clean up the neighborhood. They could have taken it uh, down Pierce Butler Road, which would have had a minimum impact on businesses and also residents. You know, it was like um, dropping a bomb. It just scattered people all over. And um, even though we have tried to put back the pieces a little bit, for the most part, people have moved on and even some years back moved to suburbs and different places. So we don't have the continuity, the the communityness, uh, the, the social uh, connectedness we had before. Tell us about Reconnect Rondo and the Land Bridge Project. This project has a lot of deep historical meaning in that the highway basically disrupted connectivity that existed for you know, decades before the highway was built. The Friendly Streets Initiative did this project called Better Bridges for Stronger Communities that worked with communities along I-94 to diagnose the issues of the highway and the crossings and, and to vision for how to improve the crossings. One of the bridges that we looked at was Victoria Street Bridge. And the Victoria Street project, like all of our projects, was a wonderful opportunity to bring people together around a question, around the question of this particular public space and how it might be um, improved, uh, how it could serve the needs of community members better than it currently is doing. And out of that project, the idea of a Rondo land bridge emerged. Knowing that that was such a big project, the idea of creating new land, basically capping the freeway, possibly creating 15 new acres of land, Uh, effectively creating a tunnel for where I-94 runs. Well, that's a huge project. I mean, there's lots of ways to improve the crossings over I-94. Some of those ways can be very modest. Um, They can be effective, but fairly modest. And the more ambitious ideas are to do things like create new land and cover cover the highway entirely. Actually, even more radical than that idea is to fill in the land where the highway is and to completely recover what street pattern was there before and the housing that was there before and so forth. In some ways, that's the, the most profound way to address the harms of the highway. But short of that, if we're going to have a highway, then a land bridge seems like kind of the least that could be done for communities that are living proximate to highways. And that's true not just in the Twin Cities, that's true all over the United States. Does Reconnect Rondo have an underlying philosophy as to how the planning and development of the land bridge should be carried out? If there's going to be a major infrastructural project in Rondo, then it needs to be community-led. Anything else is a, a kind of a process failure. 
What does the land bridge mean to Rondo community members? Is there any skepticism that the ethos of community involvement will be maintained once the project gets to the development stage and the whole battery of government decision-making requirements is triggered? You know, it's brought a sense of hope. It's brought a, a sense of sort of reclaiming what was lost. And so uh, we just have to see how it, uh, you know, how it plays out. We know that three of the major government initiatives, the light rail, uh, Rondo, and urban renewal, we were not at the table in the early stages of, of those discussions. Tell me how you engaged the community in these discussions. Uh, just today, I was flying for our Rondo Land Bridge party, which is on June 9th, by the way, Friday, June 9th, 3 to 7 p.m., um, at the uh, Rondo Commemorative Plaza, which is at the intersection of Concordia and Fisk. So I was flying for that today and uh, actually talking with a gentleman who lives right on St. Anthony. His house faces the highway. And one of the things that he revealed was that he has a, a daughter who has... I guess it's susceptible to seizures. And he didn't go into detail, but he said that when trucks are braking along I-94, the rumbling of the trucks, that will wake her up at night. That will possibly, I don't know, he didn't say that it necessarily sets off seizures, but it's disruptive to her in, in a way that he was connecting to her medical condition. We need to understand in great detail what are the different dimensions of the harm of the highway. There's lots of ways to look at that. We have all kinds of imagery that we can present to folks, and we can get all kinds of feedback to that imagery. We can lay out big maps of I-94 and ask people to identify problem spots or their ideas for where they think a land bridge might be best placed um, along I-94. We meet with people constantly, <laughs> you know, thousands and thousands of meetings and listening sessions, parties, barbecues. So the point is, we have to listen in a lot of different ways. And then once we've listened, we can take what we've learned and see if there's a consensus position that the community can take for this. We uh, utilized a model that was developed by the Friendly Streets Initiative, uh, who, who created it uh, as a group of residents in Frogtown and Hamlin Midway, two neighborhoods in St. Paul, who came together around another project and decided that there are two important lessons for something being genuinely community-led. Lesson number one is that any community conversation about a change to our landscape or our neighborhoods has to precede public agency involvement. Communities need to be starting the conversation. They need to be diagnosing the problems. They need to be defining the problem and they need to be at the uh, helm for visioning solutions. The second lesson is to have fun and to hold events that have a playful quality where levity is the predominant uh, disposition or the predominant attitude or atmosphere. We're talking about block parties here, which is a, a wonderful way in which people come together that's been around, you know, for as long as people have been coming together and as long as we've had blocks. But to then utilize a party, kind of a party with a purpose is what we call them, allows people to come out in a very relaxed and informal way and interact uh, as they please, kids running around the street and so forth. And at the same time, maybe show some imagery of what could be here. Could this, be, could this street look a little different? Could this park little, look a little different? Uh, so 
It's important to have parties bring out lots of folks and then from there invite folks to stay involved as the process continues, as we move into more specific planning. How does this compare to the typical process used for large infrastructure projects? The typical process is kind of the opposite. Public agencies and planners, you know, have some ideas about an area, and and maybe they do some of the technical work in advance, and then they bring ideas out to the community, and and then that feels a a little backwards. It puts community on the back foot having to be reactive rather than being on the front foot proactive. So that's what we're trying to do with Reconnect Rano, be proactive, bring people together, have a lot of fun, have this important conversation and see where it goes. Out of that, we now have given for, um, or the community has produced uh, a document that indicates what is needed. Um, That becomes a tool for community to use when moving into a design phase and uh, starting to think about what this actually could look like. And what do people think it could look like? We've heard um, interest in potentially uh, uh, housing that could be rebuilt We've heard uh, interest in, of course, green space. A lot of people are that we talk with are very interested in what the economic consequences are of, of Rondo Landbridge. Could there be an economic engine that would be beneficial primarily to Rondo residents? Um, not exclusively necessarily, but primarily to Rondo residents. We're creating land, potentially, you know, and so that opens up a lot of possibilities. Could there be a market? A year-round market that draws its energy from the sun and that provides opportunities for local entrepreneurs to do their work, to sell what they can sell, and so forth. There's been heightened advocacy in the area of environmental justice over the last decade or so, and there's clearly an environmental justice dimension to highways that are being built through communities of color. But I'm wondering if there's also a different kind of justice we should be thinking about that we maybe haven't given a name to yet maybe infrastructure justice or something? I think of this as a project, potentially an environmental justice project. I think highways, I think it's demonstrable and defensible to say that highways are an example of environmental racism, Um, at least in terms of the decisions that were made in a lot of communities, a lot of cities throughout the U.S. So there's certainly a justice component or a justice dimension to the project, clearly. Public health is the other important dimension here. And if we could think about health justice, um, I think this is a health justice project. I like your, your phrase, transportation justice, or no, infrastructure justice, that's what you said. I like that. I think I might start using, <laughs> using that. Um, I, I think the idea of this being a justice project is, is felt by a lot of folks. But the idea of the notion infrastructure justice is kind of a parallel to environmental justice is very compelling to me. Well, we know as a result of I-94, our children has one of the highest rates of uh, lead levels. And that's something that they didn't think of then and probably don't even think too much of now. I think institutions, you know, have some catching up to do as far as bringing in justice framings or kind of thinking more comprehensively about the consequences of of the work that they do. In our relationships with public agencies, we're pushing them, always. We're there to present a frame for the project that they may not be able to see because of the perspective they're looking at it from. You know, that's the benefit of being an organization that's trying to bridge community and public agencies, that there can be a lot of co-learning 
that occurs. That's very important to us. It's very important. Well, it's not just the bricks and mortar of the project, but it's uh, reclaiming a little bit of what's been lost. And so I think that's the excitement about it. Right now we have the freeway dividing our community. With the land bridge, the community is reconnected again. And hopefully uh, some of the spirit that existed back uh, during the old Rondo days, as far as seeing the businesses and people being able to walk to work, uh, not having to get on public transportation to make purchases and so forth, you know, they can reclaim some of that. Well, it's a beautiful project. and No, I thank you for giving us the opportunity. Yes, thank you very much. I've enjoyed this. Thank Good. you both. Here to There is produced by Apparatus, Transit for Livable Communities, and Studio Americana. Your hosts are Laley Fatahi and Laura Monginsberg. Production and editing by Ian Lovett with Studio Americana. Original music supplied by Bubba Holly. No part of this podcast may be used or reproduced without express written consent of Apparatus. To join the ride, subscribe to Here to There at heretotherepodcast.org on iTunes or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. While you're there, don't forget to leave us a review and rating. Stop by the heretotherepodcast.org website for additional content, including extended interviews, an interactive commuting story map, pictures and videos from our commutes, and much more. 